Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I am joined by some of our regulars. That is Damon Linker of the Week and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Sitting in for Bill Galston this week, we are happy to welcome Norman Ornstein of AEI and other places. And our special guest this week is New York Times columnist Brett Stevens. Welcome to all of you. Wish it were a better anniversary, but it's an important anniversary. Today is January 6th, and as we speak, there are commemorations in the Congress about the events of that day. And the first thing to notice is that there was a moment of silence held on the floor of the Congress to honor the police officers who died defending the Capitol and those who died afterwards. And there were a number of Democrats in attendance and Speaker of the House, and there were only two Republicans, Liz Cheney and her father, Dick Cheney, who, of course, is no longer a member of that body. So one sitting Republican to commemorate this and and to observe a moment of silence. So let's start with Damon Linker. Damon, does that tell you something about where we are? Uh, yeah, it tells us exactly where we are, which is on the far side of the, I don't know, three or four days following the insurrection a year ago, when it looked like reality might finally intrude on what the Republican Party has become under Trump. And then it failed, as it has failed at every prior moment where it seemed like reality might intrude on that world. We live in a reality now where the Republican Party, in this context, I mean office holders, the people who kind of run the party behind the scenes, plus the, the major office holders in the party, live in cowering fear of Republican voters. And the Republican voters have and remain to a, an alarming extent in the pocket of Donald Trump. So... There was a, actually a debate going on on Twitter in the run-up to the anniversary where some journalists were sharing polling data showing that Trump's approval has stayed pretty much steady among Republicans from a few months before the election through the crazy events of the transition period and all the way down to today, a little bit of a sagging from around 90% to kind of mid-70s, very slow drift. But Mitch McConnell and some other major figures in the party reach a kind of cliff right at January 6th at where they drop precipitously. It's like coming to the edge of the Grand Canyon and they just go down and they never recover. And there was a debate about how, well, could this have been changed if, say, McConnell and other leading Republicans had responded to Trump's uh, attempts to deny the results of the election right after the election. Remember, we had election day, and then the media called the race for, for Biden definitively after all the counting. If after a couple of days, maybe that weekend, there had been some press conferences where the party had just said, look, unless something else comes up to change the reality here, Biden is the winner. Congratulations, Joe Biden. The transition is underway. Let's get on with it. 
maybe that would have changed this dynamic. But I think that there's really no empirical evidence to back that up, because if that had happened, then Trump would have simply turned on the party earlier than he did. And the voters would have followed him at that point. So then the cliff edge and those in the approval would have fallen just a couple of months earlier than it in fact did. And yeah, the reality is hardly any Republican was willing to show up to these commemorative events and uh, it kind of acknowledged the reality of what the rest of us saw happen that day, which was a, a violent insurrection or riot, whatever you want to call it incited by the President of the United States on the basis of lies about the legitimacy of his laws. And we still have yet to recover from that as Americans, as participants in a polity that's liberal democratic in its form. We remain stuck in a kind of Groundhog Day where we simply live in, in this reality where a large portion of the American people simply reject the facts of the matter over that. And Trump and many in his party hope to use that delusion as a kind of leverage or a wedge to get back to power. And it's scary, very upsetting. Brett Stevens, it's a common trope that Republican elected officials are afraid of their own constituents, and that cowardice is what drives them back into the arms of Donald Trump again and again and again. It's what their voters are telling them they want. But I want to focus with you for a minute on the intellectuals, on the opinion leaders in the conservative world and the Republican Party who really don't have to answer to the voters, but nevertheless are in the excuse-making business. I remember very well your former newspaper, The Wall Street Journal, right after the events of January 6th said that Trump needed to resign. They were in high dudgeon, as they should have been. Now, today's editorial basically scolds the Democrats for not being willing to change the subject. When will the Pelosi Democrats leave this alone? Yes, I read that editorial. Actually, earlier today, I read another editorial, which I would commend to all of you and to everyone listening to this podcast. It's dated July 19th, 2015, and it's called Trump and His Apologists. And it begins by saying that the reason for the editorial was Trump's lines about John McCain's war service, which the editorial page correctly scolded as insulting and idiotic on the part of Donald Trump. But then it went on to take aim at Trump's apologists, in particular in the conservative media, that those apologists were debasing the name of conservatism, that they were playing to the worst populist and demagogic instincts, that they were signing up to the Trump candidacy the way that previous generations had signed up to other demagogic candidacies in American politics. And it concluded with a line, I don't have it in front of me, but essentially saying that if Trump were to become the candidate, it would lead to the uh, destruction of the conservative movement. That editorial is, uh, other than the bad prediction about Trump's political future, that editorial is on the money, and to me it serves as a lodestar for what the conservative movement should have remained. And instead, we had what I think was a process, as Daniel Patrick Moynihan famously put it, of defining deviancy down. When Moynihan was talking about deviancy in terms of 
criminality on American streets and our tolerance for intolerable behavior. But the conservative intellectuals managed to define their own form of deviancy down. I can think of so many people, including Mike Pompeo, who were denouncing Donald Trump as a a demagogue, an autocrat, a person absolutely unfit to be president, who to one extent or another wound up being, in some cases, his hand servants, in other cases, his apologists. And then there's a third category of people who I think are particularly disreputable in their views because they know better. And because, as you put it, Mona, they don't stand to really gain anything. It's not like there's a political office waiting for them or an electorate that they have to face. But it's a kind of a posture of, well, yeah, Trump's a bad guy. We regret his coarse manners, but American politics being what it is, he did become the president and the votes of 63 million Americans have to be taken into account, uh, et cetera. And I think that's a shame because the one job that these intellectuals have is in maintaining a standard for what conservative politics ought to be. You know, I think I've watched my fellow Never Trumpers move in various directions, and I don't fault any of my friends in the Never Trump movement from taking whatever political direction they've wanted to take, so long as they've remained in the Never Trump camp. Some have become quite liberal, others have remained conservative. But it's my view, Mona, that every healthy society needs, requires a healthy conservative movement. Conservatism is part of the warp and woof of any political system. There is always a conservative instinct in society. And it makes a world of difference whether that conservative instinct is represented by a conservative party that upholds the best of conservatism or whether it upholds the worst of conservatism. And the role for those intellectuals, those people who knew better and probably in their hearts still know better, is to raise a banner of respectable conservatism, which despite its beliefs, or rather because of its beliefs, understands the importance of maintaining the constitutional order and of maintaining the manners and morals that go to upholding the constitutional order. That is to say that it keeps a bit of Edmund Burke in its soul. And what we've had to your question is a conservative intellectual movement that has lost Burke, that has lost the sense that there is more to politics and there's more to the health of a polity than simply the game, than simply seeing how things play out politically. It's also about the standards to which we hold ourselves. And that's why I think January 6th is so important. This was the most debased act of a thoroughly debasing presidency. And the failure to not only condemn this, but to condemn it with a sense that it requires consequences, to a sense that it requires memory, to a sense that it requires a judgment and a fixed judgment that doesn't change according to where polls tell us the Republican Party would like to be. I think that's the single biggest failure uh, here. I mean, I get that the Lindsey Grahams of the world live to be reelected. That is who they are. They're politicians. But conservatives can do better, and they haven't done better, and that's what's heartbreaking. Uh, Right. Heartbreaking is the word. Um, Linda Chavez, you know, in line with what Brett was saying, one of the phenomena of this era is that we, in such rapid fashion, we have lost the antibodies against 
anti-democratic actions. I mean, because Trump smashed one norm after another, the posture of the entire Republican Party pretty much became whatever he did, either he didn't do it, or if he did do it, it wasn't so bad. Or if it, no, it wasn't bad at all. It was the right thing to do. And, and so that there came a point where there was nothing, just nothing the man could do, including sending a, a mob to the Capitol to ransack and, and desecrate it, that would cause them to break with him so that we no longer have these objective standards that say, well, whatever we might say, in the end, you know, we all have to uphold our democracy. We all have to do what's right. One more thing to set this up, um, JVL circulated in his newsletter, the clip of Richard Nixon, until now considered the great demon of recent American politics, um, considered terrible villain. In 1961, he was the vice president. He stood before the joint session and he read the results of the Electoral College and then he made a little two-minute speech about the sanctity of the democratic process and how he, of course, had to respect the fact that he had been defeated and he wished luck to the new president, John F. Kennedy, and the new vice president, Lyndon Johnson. It was just a little grace note, the sort of thing that used to be taken for granted and has been smashed. Look, I want to touch more on something that Brett said, and that is about the need for conservatism, that societies need a conservative party. And I think what we have seen over the course of the last five years is American conservatism's collapse. I don't think there is much of a conservative movement in the United States anymore. You know, the organizations, the institutions that would have been thought of as conservative a decade ago have basically abandoned some of the principles of conservatism, and they seem instead to have embraced populism. And I think they are no longer even trying to hide that fact. I was working on a piece I've been writing about the great replacement theory and went back and, and read something from the American Mind, which is a publication put out by the Claremont Institute uh, earlier in the year. The article was written by a fellow named Glenn Elmers, and it was, Conservatism is No Longer Enough. And among the many provocative things that Elmers says in this piece is that the U.S. Constitution no longer works. Now, that is the kind of sentiment that we might expect from the radical left, but it certainly is nothing that you would have ever heard from an institution which supposedly reveres the American founding. And yet, I think, you know, I have to commend Elmers for his honesty. It's very clear in reading this piece that uh, conservatism itself has become part of the enemy. He talks in, in the piece about Conservatism, Inc. And I think what we're seeing right now is a dramatic shift in American politics with one of the major parties no longer representing anything that would resemble traditional conservatism in the Burkean sense, or really in, in any sense that we have understood it over the last hundred years or so. And instead, it is simply a party that is embracing 
a kind of populist nativism that is very dangerous and is one that clearly has broad popular appeal across the country. It certainly, you know, I think that it was not an accident that Donald Trump won the election in 2016 based on what were very racist themes, themes that were basically nativist in nature, and that that more than any policy prescription, more than any sort of traditional political program that he put forth is what attracted people to him. And what has happened is that I think Many of the institutions, from the Heritage Foundation to the Claremont Institute to others across the the right, have basically just thrown overboard any concept of American conservatism. And I think that makes this a very, very dangerous point in American history, because without a conservative party, without the Republican Party being a conservative party, without it being a party that does, in fact, hold to the Constitution and reveres the Constitution as the bedrock of our republic, I think we're lost. Yeah, rule of law. By the way, it's a shame that the uh, phrase know-nothing party has already been used. Because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, yeah. Yes. All right. Norm Ornstein, there are so many excuses out there that could be dissected by this panel, but let me just throw one of them at your way. And that is a lot of the excuse makers say, well, don't be silly. It was not an insurrection. It was a ragtag bunch of rioters who maybe got carried away. And as as Roger Kimball put it, was it unwise? Oh, perhaps. But an actual attempt to overthrow an election? Preposterous. And so I just would like to just read real quick from uh, Peter Navarro's interview that he gave to Rolling Stone, where he, he talked about the Green Bay sweep, which is his and Steve Bannon's great plan where they were going to slow down the certification of the Electoral College votes long enough, they thought, to get them to send back to the swing states these slates of delegates and therefore throw it into the House of Representatives where, without those states, Donald Trump would be declared the winner. Your comments, Norm. Not a coup? (laughs) Um, It was a a direct coup attempt, and I think we will find, as we already have with much of what the January 6th committee in the House has uncovered, but with a lot more to come, that this was planned out fairly carefully by a significant group of people, some of them with direct attachments to the White House. And there is good reason to believe that several Republicans in the House participated in this. We know, for example, that some of those who came, many of them in battle gear and with walkie-talkies and paramilitary and military training, they had the locations of unmarked offices of leaders of the House and Senate that nobody would know if you didn't have a map in advance. And they weren't going to get that map in advance unless it came from some of those members, perhaps with allies in the office of the architect of the Capitol. We're going to find out a lot more. Um, you know, a few more things that just flow from all that we've heard. There's a a new analysis done by the University of Virginia Center for Politics and a Project Home Fire from the University of Massachusetts survey. 52% of Trump voters agree with the following statement. 
the people who occupied the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, should be applauded because they were mostly patriotic Americans trying to right the wrong of the 2020 presidential election being unfairly stolen from Donald Trump by massive electoral fraud, 52%. Now, that's part of the reason I think we've seen the cowardice of the elected leaders after so many members, including Kevin McCarthy, had been frightened for their own lives on that floor of the House. And they had no idea whether some of the people storming the Capitol and trying to get into the House chamber had assault weapons or other deadly weapons that could kill them. They came back to exercise their responsibility and two thirds of the House Republicans voted to say that the election had been stolen from Donald Trump. Now, you know, we talk about political parties. I don't think we have two parties anymore and the system can't survive without two problem solving parties. I think we have one party in a cult. And if there's anything that has surprised me, and I've worked with and have been good friends with many of these elected Republicans, more in the Senate, some of them who came over from the House than in the current House, people I had great respect for. It's the lack of moral courage, of any willingness to stand up and support the oath of office that they took to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. And my explanation for this is if you are a part of a cult and not a traditional political party, the fear of being excommunicated or shunned or treated as an apostate is an overwhelming one. And I look at a, uh, a Lindsey Graham who just ridiculously tweeted today condemning Joe Biden's brazen politicization of January 6th in his speech today. <laughs> the, the attempt to whitewash here, you just can't fathom the possibility of going back home and having all of the people you have socialized with or known treating you as a traitor. And that includes all these people who are retiring, who don't have to worry about primaries, the, the Rob Portmans of the world, and all of those Republicans in the House who voted to impeach Donald Trump after this, who knew that he had instigated this uh, violence and very possibly had done even more, those Republicans who faced death threats even afterwards for the temerity of voting for a bipartisan infrastructure plan, that none of them showed up after their lives have been threatened today other than Liz Cheney is just a reflection of how far we have sunk and it goes down to every level right now and we have a lot of work to do and i'll say again when tom Mann and i wrote our book it's even worse than it looks and we wrote it a decade ago and we took a lot of flack from uh, republican friends most of them then currently in office but i tried to explain over and over that i wasn't condemning the republican party i was trying to save the republican party we need a Republican Party. It's going to be, as Linda said, a conservative party. In this day and age, it's going to be a very conservative party. But if we don't have a party that respects the fundamentals of the institution, the need to work together to solve problems, that the people on the other side of the aisle are your adversaries who may be deeply misguided, but they're not the enemy trying to destroy your way of life, then we're sunk and we're getting close to that point. Brett Stevens, what do you think is the future of conservatism? I mean, is there any way to see a future where there is a new party that represents the conservative mainstream, maybe led by Liz Cheney, or am I just really getting crazy? 
Well, I wrote a column about this last spring titled America Needs a Liberal Party. And by liberal, I meant it in the old-fashioned sense of the mm -hmm. word, a party that respects free enterprise and private property and individual initiative, but also a party that represents those core liberal rights that used to just be part of the common political and even ideological currency of the American people. Belief in free speech, pluralism, and the value of immigration, the importance of the rule of law and democratic process. And there is a constituency for this. I just don't know how large a constituency uh, it really is. It, maybe it's the case that over time, more and more people will come to recognize the moral bankruptcy of, of the current Republican Party and look for an alternative. I'm not immensely hopeful, but I still think it's it's something we ought to do. I'm, I'm a believer in the idea of a saving remnant of uh, 10 just men left in the proverbial cities of the plain. But th there's a second reality that we need to address squarely, which is that in order for the moral bankruptcy of the Republican Party to be exposed, we also need a healthy Democratic Party. And right now, I'm not sure we have it. I don't mean a morally healthy, although that, that's an argument worth having, but a Democratic Party that in its own way represents the great liberal but squarely uh, American traditions of FDR and Harry Truman and uh, Bill Clinton and indeed in many ways President Obama. Uh, right now, we don't quite have that. And so the current Republican Party is going to gain strength simply because it is the likely obvious opponent of a Democratic Party that is right now, it seems to me, overreaching and flailing. I know a lot of readers of the Times, uh, liberal readers of the Times, despair of the advice that I freely give to Democrats, but I'm giving this advice to Democrats because I fear that their own missteps politically are leading to nothing except the strengthening of the Republican Party in its current form. That's actually one of the things that, that worries me the most. And I use these analogies advisedly. You know, we have to be careful with them. But one of the many tragedies of the Weimar Republic is that it was incompetent on its own terms. And so we need a better liberal republic right now. Uh, to strengthen and honor the foundations of the United States rather than give ammunition to elements in American politics, which um, in common parlance, it's hard to describe in any other way other than fascistic. So when you're confronting a fascistic impulse in a democratic polity, you have to make sure that the alternative is performing well. It's delivering on its promises. It is in tune with a majority of the American people. And I don't think we quite have that. That is very well said, and it's an excellent segue into our next topic. So the situation with the Democratic Party is something I'd like to turn our attention to because I've been saying many of the same things that Brett just said. In fact, I was at a meeting of liberals and conservatives who get together every six months or so to discuss how we should move forward and try to save democracy in these difficult times. And when I gave a little speech to them about how 
basically the one and only job of the Democrats in power now is to govern in, in such a fashion that the current iteration of the Republican Party doesn't return to power. Um, it didn't go over well. Let's put it that way. They don't see it that way. And Norm, I want to hear you on this because if the Democrats were as serious as they claim to be about the threat that they see from Trumpism and from this current Republican Party with its fascistic leanings, let's call a spade a spade, they would be rushing to correct the big problem of the Electoral Count Act, which is the crazy law from 1887 that the Trump people explicitly attempted to exploit, and yet they have not done so. Is that not an example of dereliction on the part of the Democrats? So uh, let me talk about the Democrats a bit. I would say there's a, absolutely a need to reform the Electoral Count Act, but if anybody thinks that that would be enough, however you want to reform it, they're wrong. What's happening in states around the country, and I thought that General Milley was powerfully on point here, in saying that the 1905 revolution in Russia was not a failure so much as it was the first try, a beta test, that led to the 1917 revolution. The communists learned from their first failure. And what we see happening in states is a belief that they can correct what happened the first time around by getting rid of those election officials, many courageous Republicans who did the right thing, and replacing them with partisans, that they can find ways to negate votes and to take legitimate election results and turn them around with partisan bodies. Now, you could reform the Electoral Count Act, but if we have rogue state legislatures that decide that they'll ignore the results of the state election and send one slate of electors to Congress, we could still have an election stolen. So I actually believe that we need many of the elements that are in the Freedom to Vote Act that provide at least some guardrails around this system, uh, along with the necessary changes in the Electoral Count Act. And it's because what happened on January 6th last year was not a one-off thing. It was the two months that led up to it that created the problem as much as anything else. So I would agree with you on one part of that, Mona, but take issue with the other. More broadly on the, the Democrats, there is a glass half full side along with a glass that's more than half empty. The glass half full side is if you had said at Joe Biden's inaugural almost a year ago, you know, at the end of the first year of Joe Biden's presidency with a tied Senate and a three vote margin in the House, he would be able to get just about $3 trillion in infrastructure spending, relief from the horrible pandemic, and some safety net protections for working class and poor uh, middle class Americans, confirm lots of judges and end up at the end of the year with the final month having 800,000 jobs created with what Morgan Stanley says is the best economic performance over the last few months that we've seen in many decades. People would have said it can't possibly happen that way. At the same time, they have foundered in other major particulars and certainly overreached with the approach on Build Back Better, although I would note parenthetically that most of the individual components of that are popular even among Republicans and obviously have been unable to pull their troops together to deal with some of these election issues. 
have fallen behind on uh, the Electoral Count Act. All of that is true. And at the same time, we have huge problems that have reemerged with the pandemic. And I think the pandemic and the distemper that Americans feel, even as the economy is in most respects, other than the specter and reality of inflation, doing extraordinarily well, the sense of going through two years of hell and then finally thinking we're coming out of it and then being set right back into it, along with terrible things like school closings, which I believe at the initial stages were necessary to curb some of the spread, but which were handled in a high-handed and condescending fashion by many school boards and a whole lot of other Democrats. All of that created the backlash that led to, among other things, the election of Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, and have left the Democrats in a bad place. If they don't perform and create some sense that they have their act together, I think Brett is exactly right that people judge the ruling party on the basis of whether they've done what people want them to do, whether they look like they know what they're doing. And if they don't, they'll reject them and they can elect monstrous people, which is what would happen in 2022 and 2024. And it's another part of the reason why we need two functioning parties and two parties filled with people who legitimately want to work together to solve the problems of the country. Because you're not going to have one party that can rule all the time, and it would be disastrous if you did. And at some point, even if they're doing things the right way, they're going to get thrown out, and you can't have them replaced with fascists. Okay. Damon Linker, I um, agree and disagree in part with Norm. Uh, Regarding the voting issue, let me toss it to you with this. It strikes me that the that one of the problems with the Democrats is that they are locked into some old ideas that are actually no longer true. For example, they believe that greater turnout benefits them and hurts Republicans, despite all the evidence that that's not true, that the size of turnout doesn't favor one party over another. Uh, there was a huge rural turnout in Virginia just this most recent year in 2021 for Yunkin, but he got a bigger percentage of the rural vote than Trump had gotten in 2020. A huge turnout favored the Republican, Uh, but the Democrats have it in their minds that they need to pass these laws that make it easier and easier and easier for people to vote because that's good for them. And I I don't think that that's based in reality. The other thing is that they have linked, you know, why focus on the Electoral Count Act? Norm's right that, look, if people are going to trash the rules completely, then no law is going to stand in their way. But In the interim, right now, before we've gotten to the point of complete chaos, we do have a number of Republicans in the Senate who have expressed willingness to talk, including the minority leader, McConnell, that they have expressed willingness to just reform the Electoral Count Act because they recognize that it's in everybody's interest. So the idea would be take what you can get now quickly. And it's true, it doesn't solve every problem, but at least you can solve that one. Oh, I completely agree with you. Uh, I, I thought that the, the news this week that at least some of the Republicans in the Senate were willing to go along with trying to put together a good bill to reform the Electoral Count Act was one of the most encouraging things I'd heard in a long time out of Washington and out of Congress. That's very encouraging. And of course, it's true. I mean, my friend Noah Millman, uh, who I've plugged a few times on this podcast, had a very good New York Times op-ed this week making the point that I think Norm was making earlier that 
that, you know, the ultimate problem here is public opinion. And if a large faction of the country considers the other part of the country winning to be illegitimate, then all bets are off and no rules are going to save the day. But given that fact, we can we can stipulate that that is true. It's also the case that it's good to have the strongest rules possible with the widest possible buy-in from both parties because that will in and of itself increase the perceived legitimacy of those rules and therefore diminish the likelihood that public opinion will kind of go off the rails in that way. So getting not just the Democrats, but also at least a, a, a good handful of Republicans on board for this reform is extremely important. And I really hope they can get it done. And Mona, I completely agree with you. Another good op-ed in the Times this week was from Yuval Levin. Uh, mm -hmm. He had a piece early in the week, which was going to be my selection to plug at the end, but I'll bring it in now and say something else instead. It was titled, Democrats Voting Rights Are Not the Problem. And his, I think, very good point was was the one that you made, and I would also echo uh, that, that, yes, I mean, he very much is in favor of reforming the Electoral Count Act, thinks that there are definitely problems that were revealed on January 6th last year. But the Democrats have insisted not only on, Mona, what you rightly criticized, this notion of higher turnout always benefiting Democrats. Therefore, lower turnout is a kind of anti-democratic, small-d democratic move, which just isn't true. But there's a broader sense, I think, that Democrats – I think rightly on the substance, think that a democracy is better if as many people as possible participate. I'm all for that, too. If you just ask me in a straightforward way on a ballot, should we make it easier or harder to vote? I would always vote for making it easier because I think that the franchise is, is an incredibly important institution and it, we need it, again, for the sake of legitimacy of what our government is doing. However... What we're dealing with here is that, especially during the unusual pandemic election of 2020, we relaxed the rules all over the country and states, making it far easier to vote, expanding mail balloting, expanding uh, deadlines, the number of days where you could vote, uh, making all kinds of adjustments very justifiably, I think, in light of the pandemic and issues uh, that arose because of that. But Democrats have decided that that needs to be treated, that highly unusual set of reforms that were instituted for the pandemic needs to be treated as the new baseline. And any state that relative to that baseline tightens the rules somewhat needs to be considered a kind of anti-democratic move that is disenfranchising voters. And that, I think goes too far and is, is a little demagogic in and of itself because if you look at, a, at anything of a longer time frame, going back to 2018, 16, 14, 2012, 2010, you'll see that actually that baseline of 2020 is massively easier to vote. And so backing away from it a little bit 
again, given the choice, I would say, let's stick with largely what we had in 2020. I don't see the problem with that. But it isn't illegitimate. It is not fundamentally anti-democratic to reinstill some more of the rules that were considered the perfectly acceptable legitimate norms as recently as two years ago. And the Democrats, because there are activists in the party who are very much attached to this, because they think that speaking this way in kind of five alarm, fire alarmism about threats to democracy, which, as we all know from this episode, uh, we, we also agree, most of us, I think all of us are there in the system. They think that speaking that way about all of this other stuff, too, about the rules of voting can also, you know, it, it encourages people to show up to vote and that will automatically help them and so forth. And it's not good because we need the Electoral Count Act to be reformed and we should not be attaching a kind of dead weight to the ankle of that reform that is all of these other things that I think are much less obviously uh, anywhere near as uh, pressing as the uh, reform of the Electoral Count Act. So that's how it looks to me. I hope that uh, the wiser people in both parties can get together and make the, uh, the ECA reform happen. We need that more than anything else. Linda, I endorse everything that uh, Damon said, and I want to just note, though, that um, in addition to some of the just common sense or, you know, sort of uh, anodyne rollbacks of the expanded voting rules that were enacted due to the pandemic, there have been some others that, that particular states have enacted that withdraw authority from local canvassing boards or secretaries of state and hand authority over counting votes to legislatures, which can be partisan. And so I don't know exactly what you do about those kinds of things. Those are happening. They're not nearly as common, but they are a little worrying, don't you think? I think those are actually the most worrying, as I've said uh, before on this show, I think the real problem that we have to contend with is the nullification of votes. You know, I, I am far less worried about voter access. Sure. Are there places where it's harder to vote than in other places? Yes. But you made the point early on, and I think it's absolutely correct, that uh, expanding the franchise does not necessarily benefit liberal causes, however you define them, whether uh, big L or, or small L causes. I mean, you know, do, do we really want more January 6th shamans, uh, QAnon shamans uh, voting uh, in our elections? Um, you know, the idea that each and every person must vote in every election, I, I'm not sure we would uh, be better off if that were the case. But I do think that one of the points that keeps being made in in support of the voting rights bill that the Democrats are putting forward is that somehow this is going to right the uh, terrible wrong, as they see it, of the Shelby uh, County voting rights case uh, from a number of years ago. And the assumption is that because the Supreme Court invalidated a section of the Voting Rights Act having to do with the special provision that mandated that certain counties uh, and, and states had to submit for preclearance to the Justice Department or to the District Court for the District of Columbia, any changes in voting, that having gotten rid of that, uh, we have opened the door to massive and broad-scale discrimination. 
And I think that's not true. And to act as if we are somehow going to go back to Jim Crow. I mean, Shelby was handed down, it was 2013. And since then, we've not seen uh, a drop-off in in votes uh, by Blacks. Certainly, overall, voter participation among Blacks is up. The last election was a historically high number, not not as high uh, as when Barack Obama was on the ballot. Uh, but, you know, the, the sort of crying wolf and, and always using uh, race as the issue, you know, to drive votes is, I think, uh, not a good idea for our democracy. And I, I would be very happy if we could get changes to the Electoral Count Act. There may be other provisions, uh, perhaps you know, one of the the problems, I think, in, in terms of nullification of votes is that the Constitution does give state legislatures uh, the right to uh, appoint electors for president, assuring that appointment of electors reflects uh, the vote in various states would be helpful. Uh, whether or not that could be constitutionally challenged, I don't know. If it could be done simply by, by law, most states, in fact, do appoint electors uh, based on the popular vote, but maybe most having states a, have laws to that effect. Yes, they fact. have yes, laws yes. to that effect. That's right. Um, but you know, perhaps having a national law that reflects that might not be a bad thing as well. But you know, just a sweeping change in our national voting pattern to try to make voting universal, to try to make it uh, last, you know, same day registration, etc. To to try to, to broaden the franchise. Uh, I'm not sure at this point whether we wouldn't be better off accepting something more modest, but something that will deal with the true threat at the next election, which is the threat of nullification of votes that are already cast. So, Norm, you had a, you had a response. Yeah, in, in a number of areas. Um, I've known Mitch McConnell for decades, and I do not believe that his willingness to consider uh, changes in the Electoral Count Act, which he made clear would be very modest changes, was a heartfelt belief that we really need to fix this system. It was an attempt to head off Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema agreeing to a change in the rules so that they could get the John Lewis Voting Rights Act Restoration Bill and the Freedom to Vote Act through. And if they engage in a protracted uh, discussion of this, the things that would really strengthen the Electoral Count Act are not likely to be included among them, and it's an attempt to uh, basically run out the clock, draw this out as long as they possibly could. If what we saw uh, in response to what Damon said was modest changes to try and just bulk up the electoral system by making it not quite as loose and easy to vote, um, maybe I don't think you would see huge objections to that. Almost all of the cases that we're seeing in states, removing drop boxes from particular areas, uh, saying that and, and adding some to areas that they like, all are designed to try and tilt the system. Now, it is true that you can try and tilt the system and you can have a Herculean effort on the other side to overcome that, which is what's responsible for, along with Barack Obama being on the uh, ballot, for what was a turnout of African-Americans. But I would point out that the day after the Shelby County decision was issued, Shelby County itself began to reinstate the discriminatory laws that it had put in place before. And it's not just Section 5 
that has been attacked by the Supreme Court in the most recent Brnovich decision, which completely ignored the direct language of the law. Sam Alito rewrote it to his own specifications to undercut Section 2, making it much more difficult to deal with rank discrimination. Now, if, and I think it is the case, that the idea that uh, robust turnout would not benefit either party in particular, that's not what uh, Republicans in Congress believe. Or they would say, hey, fine, go ahead. Even let's have what the person that I'm replacing on the program today, Bill Galston, have long believed in, which is some version of the Australian system of mandatory attendance at the polls. But they don't. And it's selective. And I would point out, when it comes to the Voting Rights Act, that the last time it was extended in 2006, the one that was taken apart by the Shelby County and Brnovich decisions, the Senate voted unanimously in favor, the House nearly unanimously. Co-sponsors of that act included Mitch McConnell and Chuck Grassley. Neither of them nor anybody else who had supported that act is in favor of effectively restoring what it was before those Supreme Court decisions. We have drawn some lines here. And as I said, fine, I think it's important that we deal with the Electoral Count Act. If we believe that we don't have serious flaws in the election system that include attempts to suppress the votes you don't like, but that now, as uh, Mona said, really are uh, engaged in trying to overturn election results, that can't simply be dealt with by reform of the Electoral Count Act. If we don't have any reasonable effort across the lines to try and ensure the integrity of the election system, we're done for. And right now we don't have that. And I wish that we could do it with one fell swoop with the Electoral Count Act. But I believe when you get down to brass tacks, you won't have broad bipartisan support for something that would really fix it. Okay. Linda Chavez, you had one other comment. Uh, just one quick comment on the Bronovich case, which is the one that Norm was referring to. It had to do with a, a change in law in the state of Arizona, which uh, said that your vote wouldn't be counted uh, if you did not vote uh, in the precinct in which you uh, were registered. In that case, what the court did is to look at the totality of circumstances, which is what the law requires, uh, and determined that because uh, the change in law affected one half of 1% of white votes and 1% of non-white votes, that it could not be deemed to have been intended to be discriminatory or to have had the effect of being discriminatory. You know, we're not talking about changes being made that are intentionally discriminatory and have a major impact. And so I just want to clarify that. Okay. That now brings us to our final segment. All right, we have come to the highlight or low light of the week, and I will start this week with Linda Chavez. Well, um, I am going to appoint a low light uh, of the week from our friends over at American Greatness. Um, the once well-respected historian Victor Davis Hansen had a piece Yesterday, who are the real insurrectionists? And of course, he does not think that the people that showed up and broke into the Capitol last January 6th are the real insurrectionists. No, he thinks it really is. Democrats in Congress who are attempting to destroy democracy and to stage a coup. 
And one of the things he points to is um, he says that uh, they're choosing not to enforce our immigration laws and that uh, they're allowing, as he put it, 2 million people to come into the United States illegally. There's absolutely no evidence that that is, in fact, the case. Uh, and he misstates that those who are being allowed into the United States, uh, though illegal, are not being checked for COVID and not being required to get vaccines. Both of those happen to be untrue. Okay. By the way, that same magazine, the great Trumpy magazine, American Greatness, also ran a piece uh, about January 6th, where they proclaimed, if they're, they're speaking here of Democrats, if their aim is to make January 6th their Reichstag fire, then we should go forward celebrating the events of that day as our storming of the Bastille. <laughs> so there we are, the, the voice of the right invoking the French Revolution. Uh, okay, Damon Linker. Well, as I said earlier, I kind of stepped on my own toes by uh, plugging the Yuval Levin column uh, in the New York Times. So instead of that, um, I will stick with the theme of reforming the Electoral Count Act by pointing to a, a very good op-ed from the Washington Post that had actually uh, four authors, Edward Foley, Michael McConnell, Richard Pildes, and Bradley Smith, uh, it, it, it's important because uh, they represent a range of scholarly opinion among constitutional scholars from right to left, not including the Trumpian right, but conservative to liberal or progressive. And it actually gives a fairly bare bones suggestion about exactly how the uh, Electoral Count Act should be reformed. But that is precisely uh, the little that probably will be able to pass muster with both sides. As Norm indicated, it's not as if Mitch McConnell woke up early one morning this week and said, you know what, I really need to do the right thing here. There's always a, a political motive, which is perfectly fine. He's a politician and he's the head of his party in the Senate. And so I, I recommend to readers uh, reading this essay uh, titled, again, just simply How Congress Can Fix the Electoral Count Act. Uh, it explains the importance of what the act is, what's wrong with it, and how Congress might fix it. So I hope it gets done, and that's a good place for listeners to start. Okay, thank you. Brett Stevens. Well, my highlight is a personal one. Um, all my life, I have been friends with a man named Luis Stillman. I wrote a column about him a couple of years ago uh, for the 75th anniversary of his liberation from Mauthausen. Mm. And uh, on December 31st, so a few days ago, Luis turned 100. Mm. And to me, uh, the besides the personal affection is too weak a term, the love I have for this man, the sense that here in the year 2022, Luis is alive lucid uh, and laughing and still enjoying his life is something to celebrate. Uh, it's a moment of pure joy. And on Sunday, the Weizmann Institute, where he's been a member of the board for many years, is going to hold a ceremony in his honor. Unfortunately, it's on Zoom, uh, these being the times we're in. But it's worth pausing and celebrating lives that are well-lived and lives that have overcome the kind of adversity and trial and tragedy that his life overcame. So it's a personal one, 
but uh, for me, uh, immensely meaningful and uh, I think meaningful for anyone who's ever encountered this, this lovely human being. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you for that. All right, Norm Ornstein. Well, I was going to say that the low light was what happened on the House floor today with only Liz Cheney uh, representing the Republicans for the moment of silence about January 6th. But instead, I will say that it was the press conference held by Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene trying to make the case that uh, this was a false flag operation led by the FBI. Uh, so my highlight is the publication uh, yesterday, no, the day before yesterday, I should say, of a marvelous, moving, and quite remarkable book by Jamie Raskin called Unthinkable about the story of the wonderful life and tragic death by suicide of his son, Tommy, followed by his taking the leadership role on the impeachment trial in the Senate the second one of Donald Trump. It's a book that is uh, really uh, a must read for everybody and it's a, a real highlight. Thank you for that. I, I actually discovered Jamie Raskin during the first impeachment uh, of Donald Trump and uh, was very, very impressed with his demeanor and, uh, and his intelligence back then. And then he did an excellent job on the second one. Uh, unfortunately, there was no audience for it. Well, a limited audience for it. Um, all right. Well, I would like to highlight a piece that ran in the Washington Post. It was called The Striking Race Gap in Corporate America. And it went on to say a small fraction of top executives are black and the people tapped to fix it often struggle to boost inclusion. Okay. Long sort of magazine piece. Now, I'm not praising the Post for this piece. I'm praising them for the letter to the editor that they ran this week in response, because the letter was quite critical. And well done. Uh, it mentioned that the headline was, was misleading. It said that, for example, the review found that 8% of executives at the companies surveyed are black versus 12% of the US population, not a striking gap. And uh, then they went on to talk about how a number of these companies actually have many more executives, a higher percentage than the percentage of the population, and that this had been downplayed and on and on. Really good letter. My point is just this. Every newspaper makes mistakes. Every news organization has its biases. But that's to be expected. But the measure of whether you are intellectually honest is whether you're willing to admit your errors or at least to publish criticism of yourself. And the Post lived up to that. So bravo for them this week on that score. I want to thank Norm Ornstein for sitting in this week for the not vacationing Bill Galson. He had a meeting he couldn't get out of. Bill Galson will be back next week. And I want to thank our special guest, Brett Stevens. It's always a treat, Brett, to, uh, to have you. And I want to wish all of our panel and our listeners a very, very happy new year. We will soldier on no matter what. And if you enjoy this kind of reasonable, civil conversation from different perspectives, please rate and review us, spread the word. It makes a huge difference, especially if a bunch of people at the same time leave a review. It causes uh, engagement numbers or some such thing to pop and then we get more attention and great things come from that. So we would be very appreciative if you would do that for us and we will be back next week as everyone.